So uh, tonight we're talking about one of my very favorite topics, and that is just how distorted our minds are. I really like this teaching. It's called uh, uh, the Vipalasa Sutta. It's in the Anguttara Nikaya. And um, this is what the Buddha said. He said, these four O yogis, and he's talking to all of us, are distortions of perception, distortions of thought, distortions of view. Sensing no change in the changing, sensing pleasure and suffering, assuming self where there's no self, sensing the unlovely as lovely, gone astray with wrong views, beings misperceived with distorted minds. Bound in the bondage of Mara, those people are far from safety. Those beings that go on flowing, going again from death to birth. But when in the world of darkness, Buddhas arise to make things bright, they present this profound teaching, which brings suffering to an end. When those with wisdom have heard this, they recuperate their minds. They see change in what is changing, suffering, where there's suffering, non-self and what is without self. They see the unlovely as such. By this acceptance of right view, they overcome all suffering. So a vipalasa is a distortion of the mind. It is a distortion of the mind. And I, you know, invite you to just really relax and take this in with your intuitive side. Um, The the talk will be available on Dharma Seed. And there's a little bit written about Vipalasas. So, what is the cause of Vipalasas, of distortions of the mind? Bhikkhu Bodhi says that avijja, avijja, which is ignorance in the mind, or moha, which is kind of uh, uh, thought of as psychological ignorance, are the are the root causes of the vipalasas or distortions of the mind. So um, vipalasas are really fundamental to dependent origination or how the Buddha talks about how suffering happens. So it's a really important teaching. Um, In uh, dependent origination, ignorance or distortions are actually the root cause. They lead to formations, mental formations, to consciousness, to name and form us just making stuff up based on our culture and history and sankaras, our habit patterns. 
that influences our sixth sense bases and how we in- perceive things coming in our sense doors. That le- leads to contact and uh, feeling or, you know, Vedana, which leads to craving and clinging and becoming and birth and old age and death. And then it starts all over again. So there's um, three levels of the Buddha taught that there are four, four, uh, four very broad distortions of the mind. And they're at three levels of the mind. It's really a brilliant teaching. The first uh, level of distortion is distortions of perception. And that's just, uh, you know, we take in things in our environment, but of course we never take in everything in our environment, right? We take in certain sense stimulus in our environment and we, uh, we um, have perceptions of that. And, you know, we, uh, our perceptions are uh, mostly uh, distorted. If we're not seeing things as impermanent, if we're not seeing things as non-self, and if we're not seeing things as um, potentially or ultimately unsatisfactory, we're misperceiving the elements in our, uh, in our um, environment that we are perceiving. So, so we have distortions of perception. So um, let's say, for example, we're sitting on the retreat and we could have a perception, maybe in a broad sense, we would have a perception of uh, maybe we have a VR on the retreat. Sexual energy is huge on retreats. I'm sure many of you have experienced that. And um, actually, this one excellent commentator, Pia Tan, says, there's four things that we have vipalasas about. It is sex, money, uh, status, and sex, money, status, and what's the other one? Sex, money, status, and power. That's it. Sex, money, status, and power. So let's say uh, we start off having... Uh, a VR. Let's say that just based on, you know, one way to understand sexual energy on retreat is that we're collecting all of our energy, right? It's a great collecting process. We're not uh, dispersing a lot of energy by doing a lot of thinking. So we have really accumulated a lot of good energy. And that can feel like a little bit of pressure. And I've heard uh, the the way that Joseph talks about it, Joseph Goldstein, and I like the way he talks about it, is that we have this pressure, and depending on what chakra it's at, we get a buzz. So when we have uh, this energy accumulation around our chakras, around our pelvis, we experience it as, it as sexual energy. And, um, you know, I'm... You know, I've experienced that a lot on intensive practice, and it's normal. It's a totally normal experience. And um, it can often lead to vipalasas, though. It can lead to 
sexual energy can lead to uh, distorted perception. So it could be that we have this energy and, you know, just based on our mental habit patterns, we might think, oh, this person, he, she, or they, they're looking pretty good. And we might think, oh, I think that they've noticed me too. There might be little thoughts like, I notice when I happen to sit across from them at the dining hall, there seems to be a little bit of recognition. So that would be maybe a distorted perception because you don't really, you have no idea what's going on. And then that could lead to distorted thoughts. So the thoughts might be something like, you know, if I... If I was able to, like with this person, I think that I could really have a future. <laughs> We're both at the meditation retreat. They look age and gender and count your, you know, identity uh, appropriate. Wouldn't that be great? And then you might start into some fantasy, also known as papancha, some fantasy going on. And then that, those thoughts, that uh, distortion of thoughts uh, is both uh, supports and is fueled by a distortion of view. And the view is probably something like, all of my problems would be solved if I had the perfect, forever long-lasting relationship. That relationships are permanent and they bring ultimate satisfaction. Come on, we know we all believe that. (laughs) Those are, you know, that might be the distortion of view that's fueling, you know, uh, the perceptions, the selected perception in the environment, the thoughts that give rise to that, and the view that it will concretize into, and actually that view then goes and supports what we actually are aware of in the environment, right? So um, that's distortion of perception, thought, and view. But just to get a little bit more, um, to get a little bit more specific about how it also might show up on intensive practice. So maybe uh, one perception might be, uh, one perception might be thinking that things are permanent. For example, one sitting that you have might totally define your meditation practice. I, I know none of you are doing that, but it could be that the one sitting we have defines our meditation practice, thinking that uh, things are, per, uh, are permanent, right? And um, so, and usually what impacts that, our perception is things like a halo effect or catastrophizing, right? Like we have one really very disjointed sit or maybe we have a morning or a day or a few days where it's a little bit difficult to gather our energy or maybe our effort is low and we're just tired and, uh, you know, um, a storyline has... Uh, gotten the best of us, and we might think, well, that is, you know, we might um, uh, take in those perceptions and either think, uh, wow, that's really terrible practice, 
And then our thoughts would be fueled by that thinking, I'm a terrible meditator. I'm a bad meditator. I don't know how to meditate. And then the view that it would be hardened into or also fueled by is, this is the way it will be forever. Another uh, vipalasa uh, concerning that things bring satisfaction, that certain conditioned things should bring ultimate satisfaction and should make us really happy all the time, is that you might have a perception in your mind about what a good sitting looks like and what a bad sitting looks like, right? A good sitting is strong mindfulness, nothing is sticky, a lot of seven factors in there, a lot of good mindfulness, a lot of joy, a lot of concentration. That is a good sitting. And it should be like that all the time. And thoughts associated with that might be something like, well, you know, the teachers are really either good or not good at helping to support that. So when I go in to see the teachers they should be able to really help me achieve that more consistently. The guidance should be about consistently achieving those kind of meditative experiences. And my teacher is either good or bad, depending on that. There might be a lot of thoughts about that, how I'm relating to the instructions or guidance, or even the talks, or maybe the 815 sits, or maybe the... um, the uh, Brahma Vihara, uh, guided Brahma Viharas. And uh, the view that might be, the view that might be um, feeling that, a hardened view that we may or may not even know that we have is that for things to be satisfying, there should be no dukkha. That for experiences to be okay, they should be pleasant. They should be beautiful. And beauty looks like this. The um, distortion of self, thinking things ourself, might be This is my cushion. This is my, this is my seat in this hall. And it should look like this. I should have these pillows. And uh, for me to really show up to do my meditation well and have it be a sincere expression of myself, this is the outfit I need to have. It needs to be loose but warm, layered, so depending on how the temperature unfolds. <laughs> and the thought that these perceptions might lead to are things like, I have to control my seat, I have to control my room, I have to control my experience. It needs to be controlled like this. And I can control it like this. 
And the hardened view that that comes from is, I am making this happen, and this is happening to me. Another aspect of self is when we're sitting on the cushion and things that are arising, it's so interesting, isn't it, that some things that are arise, there's no stickiness to it. It's like we see them in strong mindfulness and they're just like clouds floating across the sky. Or to use the beautiful um, analogy when they teach children mindfulness, you know, if our minds are a lake, and our thoughts are just fishes swimming through. Some of the fishes are just in the distance and we could say, oh, that's a blue fish and that's a yellow fish. And sometimes when the thoughts are sticky or we believe that they're self or they're personal, that fish is up in our face, right? This is my delusion. This is my, you know, um, One way to think about it is, you know, uh, insert your identity here. This is your victimhood. This is your privilege. This is your gifts that are unappreciated. This is the, uh, um, you know, this is my beauty that's not seen. This is the way that I am uh, pushing away people or don't deserve this or that, or deserve this or that, when things are very, very personal. Those are, you know, we um, extract those perceptions out of the environment based on a very limited uh, view of what's happening. You know, that's one thing that James teaches in his wonderful Awakening Joy course that you know, where through evolutionary psychology, uh, kind of hardwired to see the dangerous and not necessarily the good, and that we can retrain ourselves by taking in the good, by realizing how we do selectively, uh, uh, we do have very selected attention and selected taking in of what our sensory experiences. So that's at the perception level, and it leads to a lot of papancha thoughts about identity. And those are really hardened views. Maybe it's our uh, bad self-esteem of one way to say, say that. Or it could be our sense of privilege that we don't even see. Um, you know, I my um, terminology based on some populations I work with is, you know, we are neurally decolonizing patriarchy and racism and white supremacy and, um, you know, classism and heterosexism and, uh, you know, having attractive people have to look like a certain thing, you know, having to be tall and thin and straight and Christian and white and well-educated, having that be our default sense of beauty. Uh, one, um, so the, the uh, four distortions are thinking things are permanent, 
thinking things bring satisfaction, thinking things ourself. And then the fourth one is so interesting. The Buddha talked about thinking, thinking things that are beautiful that are not beautiful. That is so interesting. And I don't think that he meant it as, um, you know, not to look around and appreciate the beauty of life. I don't think he meant that at all. I think my way of understanding in it anyway right now is just to realize what informs our sense of what, what is beautiful and how that's probably, you know, based on cultural factors and a lot of factors that we don't even realize influence what we think is beautiful. And thinking that what is beautiful for us is beautiful for everyone. That is such a pervasive thought. Yeah, we actually have a term for it. And this is going to be, some of you might like it and some of you won't, but it's called, I like it. It's called universalizing our subjectivity. Just thinking that the way that we think is the way that everybody else thinks. What we think is beautiful, everyone thinks is beautiful. The most attractive person in this room, we would all vote and we would be able to come up with one person. So it might be a thought, for example, you might, I'm sure many of you have seen all the new construction down the road, and you probably think, wow, that is so great. Spirit Rock is expanding. You know, you, uh, or you might think, you know, do they really need to build all these buildings on this historical Miwok land? You know, where are all the people who used to be here? Either, you know, perceiving it as good or bad. That would be the perception. And the thoughts that might come from all of that is, you know, humans really enhance a natural environment with buildings. Or maybe the opposite, like, you know, we should all be living in cooties around here. And then, you know, very fundamental to that, what is the hardened view that gives rise to that is, humans can use any resources with impunity, right? We can use the air and the water and natural resources and not care about their impact on the planet or on people, you know, down the road from us. Humans are the highest form of life on the planet. And it's so funny to think that um, that's not necessarily a universal view. Many of you probably know that both the presidents of Bolivia and Ecuador, two indigenous countries, just in the past two or three years changed their constitution so that the natural environment has equal white rights to humans in those countries. They have Water has the right to be unpolluted and to be not overused. The air has a right to maintain its, you know, original, original purity. All the natural resources have a right to, and the animals have a right to life and freedom and uh, not suffering. And that's a view. 
you know, that's a view. And it's so funny, I had a, a friend, uh, actually a student from South America, and I said that in class, and she came up to me, and she said, yeah, you know, my mother just wrote to me and told me uh, that uh, Bolivia had done that. And she used it as an example of how primitive Indians are. That's a view. So I love the Vipalasas because I have seen almost every single thing I think is a distortion. And because I've seen that in intensive practice, uh, even if I believe something in the moment, uh, it's a lot easier for me to let it go. Particularly when I can see that it's causing suffering or that it's causing division or uh, ill will towards others in me. Though today I was totally with, I had so much papancha, I'll tell you about it. So <laughs> it was so interesting what a distorted view it was. So a few a few days ago, one of my... Uh, one of my uh, academic partners who I adore, you know, we, we run an American Indian Research Center. It's like, it's a safe place on a campus that, you know, doesn't always feel like a safe place for us. And she called me a couple of days ago, you know, obviously really distraught over a big, pretty big budget shortfalls, you know. And, uh, and she was saying, we have to do something and everybody's going to have to take a hit. And, you know, my view was, but I shouldn't have to take a hit. You know, my work is the most important work there. <laughs> it's a significant contribution. You know, that was the perception that I had. I didn't realize I had that perception. All I knew was, this doesn't feel good. So she said, uh, so we're going to take two of the people who work with you and for you are on these budgets and we're going to actually take them off those budgets and put them on your budgets. And it's going to be from starting the summer of 2015. Yeah, so it was like, wow. That seems like that is so unfair. That is so unfair. And uh, so I was just ruminating about this, like, what kind of place do I work in? You know, what's going on here? they don't appreciate me, they don't see the important work I'm doing. So I had all these assumptions. And then today the total uh, bubble was burst. It was actually burst probably like an hour before I came up here because I, I, uh, I got an email. Well, I had a meeting this afternoon with all of them and they're saying, we have to go out to, uh, we have to go out to North Dakota. We have to go out to... Um, Bismarck, North Dakota, and collect data because our partners out there, our community, tribal culture partners aren't collecting data. So we need all this money to go out there and collect the data ourselves. And I was saying, we don't have any money. You know, we just got a hit of thousands of dollars of, you know, people getting put on our budgets from last summer. We don't even know where we're at. So I was all worked up, like really all this fear came up. And uh, this, you know, brilliant, brilliant uh, partner 
in my research said, but it's only going to cost us like $2,000 to go to South Dakota for a week. And I'm, I mean, North Dakota. And I'm saying $2,000, let's do it, you know? Um, so just my thought of how much it would cost beginning was totally, was totally busted. And then on top of that, right before I started to come up here, I got an email from our administrative director and she said, your staff came in and was asking about the budget hit of this retroactive thing. She said, you do understand that we're putting them retroactively on the administration budget, not on your research budgets, right? So I had been in this tizzy for like three days of just attributing this ill will and lack of respect and, and it was just based on nothing. And I bet if you, you know, thought of all of the things that you are just tugging around with at this retreat, all of the karmic unwindings, they're probably equally based on the one hand on just major distortions of perception, you know, taking in um, a limited environmental um, data about what's happening in our environment, having that turn into papancha and having that turn into a view of who we are or, or who we're not who our relationships to our family are, what our worth is in society. You know, what Pia Tan says, uh, sex, money, status, and power. Just misperceptions on all those levels. And, actually, the Buddha talked about this 2,600 years ago. He talked about the three levels of distortions and the four types of distortions and organizational management psychology came up with the ladder of inference in 1985, which is essentially the same approach. They say that we observe data and experiences in our environment Selectively, we select data from what we observe. We add meaning to that data based on our personal experience, based on our, our cultural practices, based on, you know, the greed, hatred, and delusion of the social and economic and entertainment level. We add meaning. We make assumptions about that based on that meaning that we add to it. We draw conclusions about the way the world works and the way that we work. And we adopt beliefs about the world that we don't even know that we have most of the time. We don't even know that we have them. And then based on those hardened beliefs, we take action in the world. And those beliefs form a reflexive loop and determine what data in the environment we pay attention to. The best case scenario is that, you know, with all of this training that we've been doing, you know, we have benevolence. What our interpretations are are mostly benevolent. 
and we understand karma and we understand it really doesn't even matter what other people do. We're the ones that create the conditions for happiness or unhappiness. We're the ones that create that condition for ourselves. And, you know, our actions um, and the karmic outcomes of those are the conditions for our unhappiness or unhappiness. That's the best case scenario. The worst case scenario is that we believe all of that. We believe it. And as the Buddha said in the Sutta, misperceived with distorted minds, bound in the bondage of Mara, we are far from safety and we go on flowing, sensing no change in the changing, sensing pleasure and suffering assuming self where there's no self, seeing the unlovely as lovely. So, some other common distortions, the ways that that shows up for us in practice is of course, I already talked about the mental filter that we just take in certain things in our environment. We dwell on a single event and think that that defines everything. We jump to conclusions. We think that we can read people's minds. We know of our Vipassana Vendetta or Vipassana Romance. We know that we have something going either for the good or for the bad. We think that we can read people's minds. We think we're a fortune teller. We can anticipate experiences or how things are going to turn out. We either magnify or minimize. You know, I don't need to look more deeply into my self-hatred because, you know, I only have it once in a while. Or I want to magnify my um, tendency to strike out, you know. And then probably most, the most distorted is thinking that it's all personal thinking that we invented greed, hatred, and delusion. That all of those negative mental habit patterns that we have, somehow, you know, we are to blame for all of that. And spiritually, when we have vipalasas, when we have distortions of the mind, when we have distortions of perceptions, distortions of thoughts and distortions of view, spiritually, 
it misplaces the goal and confuses the goal of our practice. It's not to figure out anything out at that level, you know. The remedy is right view. And guess what we're practicing here? We are practicing the development of right view and clear seeing. The Buddha taught that right view has two conditions. And I'm sure you all know what those are. The two conditions for right view are the voice of another and wise attention. And we have both. So how do we work with these vipalasas with our mindfulness? I think we recognize fundamentally, I mean, that's what we're doing with our mindfulness frame is we're realizing just the sense of self, the sense of permanence, the sense of, you know, the distortions of the beautiful that give rise to either aversion or to greed. You know, we see more deeply with our mindfulness the truth of that, but not conceptually. I mean, it could be as simple as, you know, feeling, oh, you know, for me, I know what I'm going to do after the nine o'clock sit tonight. I'm going to go back to the teacher village and I'm going to have some blood orange sorbet. (laughs) Right? Isn't that what I'm going to do? (laughs) And right now it's like, oh my God, that sorbet is going to taste so good. And I'm going to have it and I'll get down, you know, the first couple of bites will be really good. The third bite will be, yeah, this is okay. The fourth bite, I'll remember what uh, Susan said about sugar in our our bodies. And I'll be thinking, wow, is this really that satisfying? And, you know, I'll leave probably a third of it on the dresser to melt because it won't be that good by the time I have that bite. Does that sound familiar? (laughs) And what we can do is just extract the wisdom out of that. That whatever I think in this moment of I want that, I want that, greed, greed, greed. Just to realize, yes, and, you know, what do I think it's going to, what do I think it's going to give me? Just to remember, last time I did that, this is what happened. You know, next time you want that date or you want that power position or, you know, I want my budgets not to be touched or whatever. (laughs) So we work with mindfulness. We recognize concepts as they are. We don't take them to be true. And we don't, you know, it could help us also seeing just how distorted our minds are. It could help us let go of things when we're just caught in cycles, 
you know, and to do the reflection that the Buddha taught. Is this permanent? Is this self? And is this satisfactory? You know, has it ever been? And then I always like to consider that we can also work backwards. If we know that we have a lot of um, un on uh, decolonized self-hate, or if we have a lot of, um, you know, greed towards one thing or aversion towards another, you know, if we have greed for power and sex and um, status and money, if we know that that really drives us and we know that that's unwholesome, we can work backwards even though we don't see that so like where that shows up in our view, we don't see how that shows up in our view, we can see how that influences our perception. Or with privilege or racism or sexism. I mean, I see that in myself all the time. I remember getting on a small plane pretty recently and seeing two white men driving it and thinking, oh, thank God. (laughs) And I thought to myself, oh my gosh, why did I just think that? But it was like, you know, who I attribute the most competence to, some deep-seated sense of having grown up in this culture and just seeing how that manifested in that moment. It was so interesting. You know, and that's happening all the time. But it's so interesting to see it. So that's what the Buddha taught. Distortions of perception, distortions of thoughts, and distortions of view. And that's how we can work with it, is to ask the question and investigate our understanding. You know, this perception, what narrative does it condition or give rise to? What is the narrative associated with this perception? to see whether we really believe that what's arising in our mind is doing is due to karmic causes and conditions or whether we've chosen this or this is somehow what you know we want to have happening we can ask ourselves ask the questions of our experience do i think that this is the way it will be forever Am I denying impermanence or anicca? Am I deluded in this moment? Will this last forever? Or for this experience to be okay, does it have to be pleasant? Denying unsatisfactoriness or dukkha? Or not... I mean, you know, one of the most beautiful thing I've seen in all of you that I've had interviews with is 
in many senses, it's not even how much the dukkha is diminished. It's how much the sukha is increased. Right? How much more wellness we have. How much more resilience and a sense of meaning. That's what lets us hold it all. It's about the sukha with the dukkha. And then finally examining in these perceptions, thoughts, and views. Am I making this happen? Is this happening to me? Or are we part of an exquisite club? An exquisite club that this is what it means to be human. All of us, you know, with our own causes and conditions, but it not being personal to any of us. An exquisite club of dukkha, of conditions, an exquisite club of sukha. Vipalasas. Let's get rid of them. <laughs> Let's sit for a minute. <laughs> 